What is up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Boom Athletics High Performance Podcast. I am your host, Seth Boomsma. I am excited to bring you guys this episode with Jackson Chan of Canada, speed power coach and athlete himself. This one was very informational, and if you're interested in anything sprint training related, getting faster for your sport, whatever the case may be to deal with speed and power, this is the podcast for you. The way Jackson can articulate his words, I mean, this is one of the finest young men and coaches in this business that you'll ever be fortunate enough to listen to. So without further ado, let's dive into this right away. Too bad. Why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Um, so I'm Jackson Chung. My, I'm, I'm pretty active on Instagram. I think this is the first time I'm doing something like an, like an interview. Um, but I am located in Vancouver, BC, Canada, and I do a lot of sprint coaching. I do some physical prep stuff um, as a strength coach as well. And I'm also a competing sprint hurdler. So just a coach and athlete like, like many of us are. And I'm just, yeah, just a big fan of track and field and just physical preparation in general. And yeah, short and sweet. Get at all points, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I like that. So uh, uh, why don't you tell the audience how old you are? Because the first time I met you uh, was through Instagram, obviously, like you just mentioned. I think you messaged me. I posted like a block start. You messaged me something like, oh, I'd be curious to know what the yeah. 10, 20, and 30-meter splits were. And like once you asked that question, I was like, okay, this guy actually knows his stuff. Right. Dude, a lot of people will just like respond with like a fire emoji or something like that. Uh-huh. I was like, okay, like – I'll, I'll give them the time of the day. Then eventually we just kind of kept talking on Instagram DM and our conversations are like really in depth and training on everything. So uh-huh. um, how old are you? I'm 23 years old. So I graduated university just a year ago. I graduated in 2018. Um, I studied psychology and philosophy and yeah, I'm pretty young, man. Like uh, when Dan Paff was here in Vancouver last year for a conference, um, I was picking him up from the airport and I told him I, I was a coach and he just said, you're, you're really young for a coach. And yeah, I, I get that all the time. Like you're super young. Cause we, we often, we often know that coaching, you don't, you don't get paid. There, there are no, you know, like full-time salaries in, in Canada or wherever. It, and you just wouldn't expect a, a young guy to be a coach, but yeah, here I am. Uh, that's what I do. Um, I'm super young. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I like that because I was kind of like the same way. Like when I was like 15 or 16 and like started taking track like super serious, like I cut off every other sport and I was like uh-huh. reading like, you know, like elite track, Charlie Francis forums and stuff and like asking all these coaches questions and they'd respond like, how old are you? And I'm like, oh, I'm only 16. And they're like, <laughs> what? Like what's going on here? So, so when was the first time that you started really diving into like the training methods and everything. Dude, and, and this, is, this is exactly why we get along so well. It's because we kind of live the same life of um, being a, a track ac- academic and starting really young. Um, when did I start diving in? It must have been, so I kind of got in through physical preparation, the gym type of stuff, strength and conditioning. When I was maybe grade eight or nine, so I was 14 or 15, and it, I was really interested in breakdancing. So I, I was browsing break, bboy.org forums in, in the early 2000s, mid, mid 2000s, um, and doing that. And um, breakdancers being very physically prepared, some of them on YouTube, this is still back when YouTube was in its heyday, uh, were, were sharing some workout videos. So I, I kind of started out as a YouTube, a YouTube, fitness, YouTube fitness audience. Um, watching bodybuilders share workouts on on YouTube, and and then from there on, I kind of got into T Nation, and T Nation is it gets you excited about trick and conditioning because they they th- they throw so much uh, sexy sexy stuff that sells on there. So uh, I started pretty young with T Nation, and and then I kind of read some Charlie Francis stuff, and yeah, that was I was maybe in grade ten when I was jumping straight into. Um, more folk type bodybuilding science stuff. So yeah, I started really early, 14, 15. Started through YouTube as as many of us all do. So 
Yeah, yeah, I love it. And and especially with today's era, there's so much information out there. Um, even now, I catch myself like reading old, old forum boards. Uh-huh. Forums aren't really quite quite as popular as they used to be. Uh-huh. When uh, like you know we were both kind of growing up in this coaching world, um, but there there's a lot of gold information in there. Uh, who Absolutely. are your biggest coaching influences that you've really dived into and learned from? Mm, uh, I'd say I have a couple, a couple that I haven't met and a couple that have coached me and, and have mentored the way I thought. So my biggest two coaching, uh, influences that have, that have mentored me that I have spent time with and, and in real time and, and those that are Canadian in Canadian track and field won't, will know these names. So, uh, my primary coach in university, I didn't go through the club, the club route that most athletes have gone through. So my first real time, full-time coach was my university coach, which is rather late. Um, but his name is Jason Kerr. He is running the superstar program in Guelph, Ontario. And they have two guys that have gone under 46 seconds, which is a, a fantastic achievement this season. So, um, he's, he's leading a, a superstar group. Um, Guelph, Ontario, if you guys don't know, is the first North American facility or university to have gone the 1080 sprint. So I spent a lot of time on the 1080 sprint, not knowing what it was. I wish I, I, I wish I kind of, um, spent more time doing some, doing some stuff on it. Uh, but Jason Kerr, so he was also a very young coach. He started coaching at the university level when he was 25, 26, super young, just as, just as young as I am now. And in five years, he kind of brought the university to a, to the most winning sprints program in, in Canada. So he's one of my biggest coaching influences and in just the way he kind of presents himself and communicates, um, just, you know, just cracking the silliest jokes with, with the with the university athletes so that's kind of how i roll now with my with my high school students so he's been a been he's been a big influence he was actually one of the one of the uh, moderators on charlie francis forums uh believe it or not um another influence of mine is shane firth so he was the waterloo head coach for 10 years he's now kind of moved on from that position and handed the program on to a different coach but um he's a big influence on me in, in kind of how he approaches training scientifically. So he, he has a more kind of traditional coaching route, which is he got his kin degree and he started coaching under, uh, Brent McFarlane in Waterloo, Ontario in Waterloo. Um, so he did that and, and he's influenced me in the sense that he's very blunt and he's very imprecise in kind of how he communicates. So. I mean, I mean, one telling example is when I asked him, like, how do how do people get faster? He just gave me the answer. Uh, they were just better at putting force into the ground. He wasn't selling any tricks like it's not about fly 30 or block 30 and, you know, all that stuff, doing some more sleds. He was just, you know, just very scientific. This is what you need to do. I'm not sure what it is, but this is probably what you need to do. So that's kind of influenced me in that I'm I'm very honest. I'm very imprecise sometimes when people ask me for a straight answer i just tell them dude i don't even know man so so those have been my those have been my big coaching influences um outside of mentors that i've spent time with i'd say the biggest influence on me in terms of training theory and kind of how i see sprinting in general is charlie francis and derek evely uh canadian coaches so people that that have influenced me perfect I like it. So, you know, obviously you're coaching now and everything and you're training also, you're also coaching yourself. Yeah. So what would be, what would be like an ideal weekly setup for you um, or athletes that you coach? Do you have like a template that you follow? Obviously everything's going to be individualized, you know, like when you work with athletes, but is there a simple template that you like to kind of like, that's your go-to in terms of weekly setup? Oh, definitely. And I mentioned Charlie Francis and I say I'm a Charlie Francis system through and through. So I start, I start my approach to any kind of training as, as Charlie Francis would. And his setup is, is always available, which is it's a Monday, Wednesday, Friday setup. So three high intensity days. And 
every other day is a low intensity and, and recovery. So it's a high, low polarized training system, just like any, uh, sprint training program is usually now, um, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. So I'll have Monday and Friday as exclusive, um, speed development days. So that might look like a all out run to 60 meters. Those are Monday and Fridays and Wednesdays I reserve as uh, special endurance or speed endurance days. Speed endurance more in the early uh, early season prep and special endurance kind of a little later on. So that's kind of how I, I start off and I have three cycles per year and the emphasis might change, but it's always it always remains Monday, Friday. Those are your high intensities, high intensity days. We're doing high quality speed work and Wednesdays are the more kind of just get in the volume, but they're still, they're still high intensity. So that's, that's my workout template that I use for myself and for some of the athletes. But I think, um, I need to reduce density just a touch. I don't think many of my high school guys can handle three running, uh, three running speed sessions. So next year I might look to taking out, um, Wednesday as more of a general fitness day. So yeah, yeah. that's my template. Nice. I like it. So what are you doing on those low intensity days on like a Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday setup? Are you, so are you hitting tempo or are yeah. you hitting circuits? What are you doing? So, so that's, uh, so maybe, maybe I'd offer up another template. Um, back when I was in university, we did a big damp half template. So it was a, uh, uh, a speed endurance, speed endurance. So you'd have four high intensity sessions. I, I find that doesn't work too well with me. And on, on a lot of the uh, low intensity days, we would do circuits. So I've kind of moved back into more kind of Charlie Francis type setup. So I do large amounts of tempo running. So I'm probably hitting at least 1600 meters um, of tempo running at around 70% speed. Uh, and then I'll do some abs. The highest amount of ab, ab reps I've gone up to is 700 reps. I know Charlie wow. posts posts a thousand rep uh, low intensity day workouts, but I just I, I can't I can't make it there. Seven hundred yeah. has been the highest, but I count everything. So yeah, that's what I, I, I always found I always found the exact same thing coming from I, I come from like Charlie Francis background as well. And like I always yeah. kind of look at the ab numbers. I'm like, geez, there's no way I could do it. <laughs> like so so what type of ab exercises are you doing when you're hitting those seven hundred reps? So. Uh, I have a, the first 200, I, I'm not, I'm not that consistent because sometimes I don't ever make it to three low intensity sessions. Sometimes it might just be two. Usually it's two, but after my running, I'll, um, an ideal day might be 200 med ball reps. So they're in different positions. It's more of a circuit fashion. Everything's 20 reps. So I might have a med ball set up. I might have a twist. I might have a, uh, seated good morning i might have a back hyper so all kinds of things that'll get me 200 reps and then i'll do at least 300 of just a rather easier exercise so more of a crunch so maybe i hit 30 crunches uh times sets of 10 so that'll, that'll get me to 500 yeah. and usually I'll, usually i'm pretty cooked by then so i don't know how, how i make it to 700 but it's um i like hitting not just sagittal plane exercise, so just like the crunch or uh, weighted sit-ups, all that stuff. I also include um, twists and some rotations, which which I found have really helped. So I might do a a uh, I might put a med ball over my head and I'll twist off to the left and right. So I always include some type of out of the sagittal plane exercises in in all my abs. Love it, yeah. And and for athletes out there listening to this listen to what he just said about his core work. It's not purely just flexion, you know, core exercises yep. where he's constantly doing crunches. It's a variety and hitting sure. a variety of planes as well. Um, exactly. So, so uh, diving a little bit further into your template, you know, like you kind of listened a little bit what you do for speed work and speed endurance uh, and stuff. What about your plyometrics? Dude, that's, that's, that's a piece I haven't, quite figured it out um my plyometrics da, da, da. i i will make some changes next year 
but I think my plyos have generally been pretty. It's it's not as difficult as you make it out to be, as as people like to make it out to be. Um, so some key exercise that I've used this year is the speed bound. So I'll list three of them. Speed bound. Number two is a hurdle hop set really low, but I'm just aiming for uh, quick reactivity off the ground. And the third one I've used is a single leg uh, drop jump off of a 13 inch box. So those have been my three big exercises. I chose a speed bound because it's more of a horizontal exercise um, in, in, in creating displacement, hurdle hop for top speed and the, seat, and the single leg drop jump. Sorry, the single leg drop jump. I've chosen it more as a more specific exercise for the takeoff leg and in the sprint hurdle. So those are the big three exercises. And I, I maybe have a sessional volume of around 48 foot contacts uh, three times a week. So that's, that's kind of how I do it. I, I haven't quite figured out how to, um, how to when to load it up a little bit more because I, I find 48 on, on the easier side. But it works really well. So I, I've seen improvements in my abilities in all of them. So I don't feel the need to do any more than 48-foot contacts. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I kind of, I'm a big, I love depth jumps. So uh -huh. I kind of almost go depth jump crazy a little bit to a certain uh -huh. extent. Um, and I found kind of a sweet spot per week for depth jump contacts. And I was dropping off a 30 to 40-inch box with about, about 75 contacts per week. Um, per week? Occasionally I touched on a, okay. yeah. Occasionally I got up to a hundred, um, yeah. but then it just almost felt like I was, you know, like just doing a couple junk reps at the end. Uh -huh. um, but obviously you have a little bit more variety in there too, sure. yeah. you know, where I was just hitting the same exact thing. Um, yeah. So, you know, like the new fad nowadays, I think in the sprinting world and sprinting and hurdling world is the tendon stiffness aspect. Yeah. And I know sure. you've posted quite a bit about it. Um, so what's your take on tendon stiffness and what type of exercises have you used to improve tendon stiffness? Uh, I was just reading some articles last night because I'm, I'm doing an eccentric preparation kind of phase right now. So um, I, I'm planning for a six, six week uh, general prep. So I'm using this time to kind of build my strength in uh, the hip and the knee and the, and the ankle. So I'm doing some eccentric stuff. And one of the two benefits for eccentric training is that you get a big stimulus to the tendon just because of the kind of high mechanical tension loads that you'll you'll create um on the body while you're doing them because you can go much over the concentric max and i don't know how to test this out that's why i don't ever post anything about the tendon just because i i can't observe it so i'd love to know more about it if i had like a ultrasound machine so i can see whether my tendons are growing thicker like I'm grabbing my Achilles right now and I've been kind of just checking it out recently. I feel like it's gotten thicker, but I'm, I'm not sure. I, I wish tendon was as easily observable as, as muscle is, but tendon stiffness. Uh, so my, my take on it is it's the t whether it's a tendon that is really stiff or whether it's the muscle that can create more force isometrically leading to the tendon being um, better in, in uh, storing and recoiling energy. It doesn't really matter to me. What particularly I'm looking at is um, the, the joint deformation. So if I'm looking at my ankle, I'm not, I don't care whether the tendon is growing thicker or whether the density within the collagen is, is getting better for sprinting. I'm looking at in a video whether my heel hits the ground. Just simply that, like it's it's coachable, it's practical. I don't have to, um, you know, rely on machinery. I don't have to see whether my tendons are growing thicker. So that's kind of how I see it. So I don't usually talk about tendon stiffness or muscle stiffness. I I just use um, the joint deformation or how how stiff can the joint be when you fall off a box or how stiff can it be when you're um, running. So, uh, and I think it's, it's, a, it's a massive, massive difference. So PJ Vazell actually posted a Usain Bolt's warm-up recently. Have you, have you seen it? It's, it's actually, yeah, I, I was actually just watching that today, actually. Oh, it was, it's amazing. And, and the, the, the coolest thing about it is Usain Bolt is just, is just prancing. Like his heels do not touch the ground. And I've seen that a lot with some Japanese sprinters 
there's one guy I like a lot, and his heels do not, they, they don't fall at all. They don't displace at all. So that to me is someone who has incredible joint stiffness that maybe their force propulsion characteristics aren't that high, but that they, that they can really kind of efficiently uh, recycle energy. So, so I, I, I care a lot about that. I think it's immensely useful just because of the coaching evidence that we have from coaches like Joseph Coyne and Randy Huntington and, and Alex Ventura. For example, uh, uh, I love Randy's story about when, when Subing Tian joined his group, his, his, uh, his calf raise power on the Kaiser machine was only 700-something watts. That means he was yeah. weaker than his weakest female. And now he's at 2,000-something. And I've noticed that too. Like, I, I have Kaiser racks. I don't have the machine, so the numbers are different. But I could only hit 800-something watts. And I can't move it anymore. And now that I've done a lot more ankle work, I feel like I can really pop off the ground. So I think that's, that's definitely a key exercise, a key special exercise for sprinting speed. And um, I know Charlie Francis didn't like the ankle exercises because he had some bad stories about people getting uh, Achilles overuse issues and rupturing their Achilles. But that's only because um, one of the coaches that he referenced, that Charlie referenced, they were doing 500 foot contacts in one session. So it's not, yeah. the, it's not the ankle exercise. That's a problem. It's just um, sanity of training load. But most of the load that's done on the ankles isn't um, propulsion, which is why when he, references, when he references it, it only hits 700 something watts in comparison to the hip, which can produce 3,500 watts. It's more as a, um, as a shock absorber. So it's on, it's on uh, accepting um, the ground contact where the soleus and the gas rock does the most work. I think it's eight times body weight forces, but it doesn't do so much as in uh, plantar flexion. So it's more, of a, it's more of a preventing the heel to drop rather than using the ankle to push the body. So yeah, yeah. I, think, I think, yeah, it's, it's incredibly important for both acceleration and top speed because they're related. Yeah. Right? Yeah, exactly. So I was I was at USA's indoors in 2018 when Coleman broke the world record, and we're we're warming up for prelims in a small, like two lane track at the Albuquerque Convention Center, and Coleman's just doing easy crouch starts. And I tell you what, his ankle stiffness, and you like you said, I like how you said, just watch how the heel drops. Yeah, there was no leakage in there, and obviously oh, people gosh, see yeah. it on like YouTube and stuff. When you see it on video, it's one thing, but when you see it live in person, I'm like this guy's incredible. I mean, like the way he just sprints off the ground, like he's probably hitting close to hundred millisecond ground contact times in the Excel, like I'm oh, for sure. on yeah, like yeah. step three. I mean, it's, it's insane. Um, yeah. and echoing off of that, I, so we were just talking at the beginning about how we were both, you know, track academics, you know, at a very young age, I was 21 years old. I'm 27 now. This was back in two, 2014. I just pulled it up on Twitter. I'm not going to say the coach's name just to yeah. respect him. But I had a little conversation with a coach. He was talking about um, tempo work and stuff like that. And he was promoting circuits. And that's another topic for another day. But I brought up the word tendon compliance, which is essentially tendon stiffness. And this was before the whole fad was back in the day, you know, that we have right now since like 2017, really, that this tendon stiffness started. And I, I brought up, um, I mentioned, what about tendon compliance? And he said, I roll with a lot of coaches much smarter than I, and I've never heard anyone use the term tenant compliance. Do you, but come on. Huh. And he basically bashed me because one, he's never heard that term before. And two, because I was only 21 at the time. Uh -huh. And if you guys want to search on it, you can search my Twitter name and you can search tendon with my Twitter name and you might be able to come across it. But right. like I said, I'm not going to say the coach's name, but that just goes to show you that you have to have a willingness to adapt throughout your coaching career or sure. athletic career. Um, and I, and I love, I'm not as well versed in the tendon stiffness topic, you know, cause like you and I just don't have a way to measure it. You know, we just measure, okay. we can, we can study ground contact times and different yeah. things like that using, using like my jump Two app or, or different right. things, but, uh, we don't quite have the technology right. and, you know, I want to branch into that. Um, you mentioned you worked with the 1080 and I know we've talked oh. about before we would love yeah. to have it especially sure. reading all these articles and seeing yeah. guys fly with it 
What is your take on overall over speed work? Over speed? Again, the Charlie, the Charlie Francis side of Jackson Chung wants to say, no, uh, if over speed is going to work, just buy an airplane ticket. Traveling eight, 600 kilometers <laughs> per hour, that'll get you fast. I, I love that. I love that story from him. But um, over speed, it matters a lot because, and, and there's, another, there's another layer to it, but it matters a lot. Because Charlie Francis himself used it, and we know, like for example, I, I've 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 studied Bonnerchuk and and his kind of excise categories very well, and the SDE category, category, the specific developmental exercise, is where the overspeed falls in, and when you want to raise your sport capacities to the highest levels, most of the work that's going to help you do that is in the SDE. So it's going to be for us for us sprinters it's going to be resisted speed so having a resistance while you're running or it's going to be um over speed which is you're creating velocities or limb velocities that are actually higher than what you experience uh in a regular sprint and you don't have to have a 1080 to do this like i i know that if you use a sub maximal acceleration rate and you have a full-on sprint right after that zone. That zone will be higher than what you can achieve than a all-out 60-meter run. So a 40 plus 20 is just sub-maximal 40, and you do a 20 zone. In this 20 zone, you're working on overspeed. So you're able to work on the turnover or just have a little bit more so that you can, you can accelerate deep into the rep. That is an overspeed rep. And it's probably the safest overspeed rep and the most accessible because you don't need someone towing you. You don't need um, any tools. And that's my, that's my go-to drill. Uh, I, I know a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of the coaches is, is kind of moving away from the fly 30 as a goal, as a be-all and end-all for top speed. But if you have adequate acceleration abilities, short acceleration ability, abilities from 0 to 30, then having that overspeed zone is what you need to uh, get more speed from 30 to 50. Um, so I think overspeed is a must at some point of the season after early acceleration abilities have been done. Whether it's done with a big tailwind, with towing, with a 1080, or with a, um, a setup, an energy distribution setup like the fly drill, the speed change drill, um, it doesn't matter. So that's why I haven't felt tempted to kind of get a 1080. Because I believe you have to do overspeed, but I don't think that the 1080 or assisted uh, motor-driven devices are the only way to get it. I think you can just do it by going easy for the first 30 meters. So, yeah, yeah, that's an excellent point. I mean, I, I remember reading that as well. Uh, what, what sort of fly times are you hitting with, when doing that type of setup versus if you're timing like a 10-meter segment in a 60? Uh, God, I don't, I don't have any numbers that I can give you right now, but um, any numbers I can think of. Da, da, da. So, okay, uh, a good example. It's, it's, hard to compare, it's hard to compare numbers, um, but well, one, one caveat to what I've just mentioned is that um, when you do a fly setup, where you hit the top velocity is gonna be different. So if you go out harder uh, from the get-go, You'll get, a, you'll, you'll get a top speed that's a little higher in the beginning, so maybe at 20 to 30 meters. But if you go easier, easier, it's, it's not slow. If you go easier, you might hit top speed at 40 to 50. So I think I, I'll have to bring it up, but some of my sprinters in one session, I had them go all out and easy. There might be a difference between of, there might be a difference of 0 0.03. So, so here, uh, one guy, so his best in the fly 10 is 0 0.99. After he hits a 0 0.99, his subsequent segment is 1.11. So the drop off oh, wow. is, is, pretty, is pretty high. And I've seen that with, my, with myself. My, my PB fly 10 is 0 0.98. And the zone after the, the fly 10 best zone is 1.09. So oh, wow. it's, it's a trade-off of higher speed, but you, you, don't, you don't get much after that. So. Yeah. Does that help? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I like that. That just kind of gives 
uh, our audience kind of a general outline of what to expect when doing that easy 40 meter build and having uh-huh. that 20 meter fly zone. It must, uh, it must be, it must be easy. It can't be slow. Cause I've done it slow and you don't get up to speed. Like I've hit 1.03s all day, all day, just cause I'm, I'm, I'm building it up really slowly and then I'm hitting it. But once I went fast, like fast, but not all out, I was hitting 0.99s and one, one flat. So yeah, it makes yeah. a difference. Not much, but it's enough to change the adaptations, the rhythm that you're feeling. You feel a little bit more lift. So it's a technical drill. It's, it's overspeed for sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so we've established kind of sprinting. We've established uh, different plyometrics. What about uh, special exercises in the weight room? I know you mentioned that at the beginning. You're playing around with you know some eccentrics and different yeah. things like that. Um, special exercises. Da, da, da. What things am I trying right now? So I don't like, dude, Seth. I mean, me and you both know we. I I love the bench press more than you. Like, I, I love the videos <laughs> you have. Three sixty five for a double. My God, I don't I don't know how you lifted that because that's actually my best squat. But um. I don't, special exercises to me are exercises that build same capacities, but aren't specific movement patterns. So anything in the weight room to me is, is a special exercise, even the bench press, because I I have some, I have some, I have some cool anecdotes about, you know, when my sprint times go up, my bench press goes up or my bench press is down. My speed times don't move at all. So my best bench this year was 112 kilos for one rep after my competition season or after my competition season indoors. And I was actually surprised because I was only working 96 kilos for a best of four reps. And I was hit, hitting 112 kilos. At the same time, my speed times were at its highest, marked by uh, an indoor PB on my season opener. But like thereafter that season, my speed, my speed times have plateaued, and my bench press has been 90 kilos for, for the longest time. So um, anything in the weight room is a special exercise to me. So it's a bench press, it's the calf raise, it's a chin-up, whatever it is. But some special exercise that I'm using right now is um, I like Alex Nintiro's work a lot. Uh, so right now, the two exercises that, that are worth talking about is the hip eccentric exercise that I'm using. And the ankle exercise I'm using. So on the ankle exercise, it's just a, you use two leg to overcome the eccentric or overcome the concentric. And then you use one leg to, to, uh, to load up the eccentric. And right now I'm working with around 250 pounds. That's around 90% of my isometric max. So I'm, I'm trying to build up to, in, in the next couple of weeks, build up to over 110% of my uh, isometric max, which, which I'm, which I'm, uh, which I'm getting to now. Cause my motor control at the higher loads for five seconds on the, on the lowering is getting pretty good. I, I know last year I was already trying to play with some of the hip and ankle stuff. And this was after I was, I was, I did 480 meters of speed work and a bunch of isometric, um, heavy step ups and hip eccentric exercise after a one month break. And there was no second workout because I hurt myself on the on the last warm up rep after not having sprinted for a month. So I'm being very careful with it right now. One of the studies that I read last night, um, research participants went started the first session with 100% concentric, 100% concentric max for the eccentric for six seconds, and within six workouts they went up to 120%. I think, and these are research participants. So wow. so I'm I'm being pretty careful right now, but I don't want to hurt hurt myself again because that it kind of sucks but um the hip stuff i'm doing mainly for acceleration like like we've talked about in the past my acceleration early acceleration is pretty weak because i think i'm pretty strong around uh a squat exercise but my my bum and my hamstrings are a little weak so i'm trying to get my hips quite strong to kind of create more horizontal net force that that's really influenced me jb warren's research on kind of how you accelerate into a race um, is really influencing me. So I'm doing a lot of hip and horizontal, fe- horizontal vector exercises. So that's why I care a lot about the hip and some weighted Nordic, some hamstring curls, reverse leg press, and the ankle stuff is just kind of just keeping there. So, so that when I 
am getting up to top speed. The quality's already developed. So, but yeah, other than that, like I'm pretty simple, man. Like I might go three sets of ten on my exercises, four sets of eight, G- gym bro stuff, right? Yeah, exactly. Three sets of ten. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's uh, very interesting. Those two exercises that you're playing around with, and I, I'm excited to kind of see your results overall from them. Um, in terms of the weight room for some of your athletes, are mm-hmm. you sticking with you know the very general type stuff, or are you playing around with some of this stuff a little bit on the lighter side? Yeah. So um, at the strength and conditioning facility I'm at, a lot of the athletes I work with are youth athletes. So I, I have no problems loading them up bilateral, bilaterally in the sagittal, sagittal range, just because a lot of the females can't even do push-ups yet. Um, mm-hmm. So we're working up to that. So that's my, I, I just think if you're a team sport athlete, just getting basically stronger is, is going to help to some point. And none of them are quite at that threshold yet. So I, I have no hesitation just kind of keeping them to basic stuff, like a dumbbell press, a uh, goblet squat that's, that's heavy. That's, that's enough for their needs. With some of the older track athletes I have, we haven't been able to secure a weight room facility that is um, accessible for the group. And I have huge hesitations in kind of giving athletes their own weight program. I always know that the senior, senior male athletes that I, that I work with, they're doing much more than that. So I'd rather not write the program. Because, for example, one of the athletes that I, I worked with when he went on a, uh, when he had a one week break, he came back and he almost forgot how to run, how to, how, how to run. Cause he was going completely front side. And, and I thought, dude, man, like it's going to take two weeks to change that. And it, and it did take two weeks. So I, I hesitate giving athletes their own workouts, but, um, what I have one athlete I'm doing, I I'm working with right now. He's a senior kind of sprinter. I'm just making him do some general GPP stuff. He doesn't need to get fancy yet. He's not, he's not strong at all. Like he can probably squat 150 pounds at 160 pound body weight. So, Oh, wow. So they're, they're quite weak. Some of the athletes I work with, but in the, in the next year, I kind of want to get them a little stronger and, and maybe introduce some specific stuff. Like for example, I might play around with the hip, uh, hip stuff just with body weight, with a partner elevating your, your heels. I think, just doing body weight stuff like that is going to help in, in those specific ranges. But I haven't felt I haven't felt the need to kind of load them up eccentrically, like I have for myself, who can squat two times body weight, uh, bench, one point five times. So yeah, one point four. So I'm 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 a I'm a little bit moved on in, in training than than they are. So they just need to catch up to just basic strength. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh. So let's give uh, some of these listeners kind of a background. You have a work with a track club, right? Yep. Is that correct? Uh, how many athletes are in this track club? I know we kind of talked about it a little bit about, about it before. Right. Um, within my group, the highest count we've ever had is 34 athletes split between two to three coaches. Okay. How do you manage that? Because you're usually hitting about you know 10 athletes give or take you know just for you how are you managing all that dude it's terrible and 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 i can send you a picture of our track so our track is in uh central richmond and there are probably 150 to 200 seniors just because doctors send them to this track that walk around the track so during some of our evening sessions we have people we have up to 200 people walking around so we have, a, um, we have a permit with the city that blocks off a section of the track that lets us uh, run uh, unimpeded. But how, how, how do we manage it? So this year, we had a lot of senior athletes. They're now moving on now to, to universities and, and other things. But we had a great eight, which recently graduated from the, the, the younger developmental group that our kind of JD coaches were working with. A uh, grade eight group, a grade ten group, which which are usually kind of the more beginner type of sprinters, and then we have a grade twelve athlete. So what I do is, we write, we have a whiteboard, and we write down the workouts, uh, for each group on the whiteboard, and we just make sure that they try to understand at the beginning of the workout so that they kind of self organize themselves in groups. So 
a, a grade eight group might do more kind of general fitness type of thing. And a grade 12 group might do longer speed runs. So that's kind of how I do it. Um, but it's a pretty terrible situation sometimes because, uh, you know, I'm a big numbers guy. Like I, I try to keep track of all, all numbers and, and performances. And sometimes I can't even stopwatch my long sprinters times just because I can't see them when they're within the people that are walking. So it's, it's a pretty crazy time at the track uh, with the big athlete group and with how many people um, are, are accessing the track. But yeah, next year our group is going to be smaller. So I, I hope to be a little bit more attentive and in, in kind of doing the same thing I do for myself, which is recording performances and you know, ha having sit downs, talking about uh, more educational type of stuff in approaches sprinting. Because sometimes it just drives me crazy. There, there's a guy, there's a guy who always asks me like how hard he should go before a sprint, and I'll I'll say ninety percent, and the guys, or, or I'll say seventy uh, percent, and the guys whizzing at ninety five percent. It's like what? It felt like seventy percent. I'm like, no, God, no. So, some personal time and some smaller athlete groups is is, is going to be better. But yeah, it's just nature of Canadian track and field, which is. Not not the best situation. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned that. I, I just thought of an athlete that I work with when you said the 70% and he goes yeah. 95%. I had an athlete and we were like, uh, he ran, did like the front side thing where his arms are just purely in front, kind of like the right. Lloyd Christmas run on Dumb and Dumber type thing. Yeah. And I was like, I was like, okay, we need to fix this. So like we basically tore this apart. Like he, we basically pulled him from the USATF summer series and we're like, okay, we need to go ground zero and get ready for 2020 because you're not going to, you know, you're yeah. not going to make the national meet right now. Let's, let's get on the podium next year for our South coast state meet. And he, we were just doing crouch starts. My intern and I were there and he, I was like, okay, go, go 60%. And he takes off. And I swear, like you just oh my said God. it. I swear it was, I swear it was like, it's, it's 95 to a hundred. And I'm like, was that really, was that really 50%? He, he's like, he's like, oh yeah. You know, like, this is, like this is, this is my 90%. And he just takes off and blasts the sprint. Okay. I'm like, whoa, no, let's, let's slow down here. Okay. So like, we really had to go back to the basics with him. For sure. And, uh, you know, when you're dealing with, you know, these young athletes, you know, because yeah. like you said, you're trying to educate all these guys and athletes and stuff. Um, what are some simple technical cues that you give them? Da, da, da. Some simple technical cues might be think about your hands. So I have a big emphasis on the arms, hands, hands down, which is which just means um, strike your hands down quicker. Um, let your arms drive the sprint stride rather than thinking about your legs too much. Uh, hands down, get your arms down, uh, and and usually that that fixes some problems. Sometimes you might inherit an athlete that kind of comes from a, a poor background. So I have a distance athlete who, who is a just backside. So her spine is just in a C shape and she's just, there's no front side action at all. And one session, I just had to make her do 30 something dribble over the shin. But yeah, even that didn't work. So, so usually I like to approach it by kind of managing the sprint distances. So when my guys look like crap at 50 meters, my tendency is to just reduce them down to 10 meters and it and usually fixes itself. So I found anything like longer than 30 meters is really hard to kind of have them have good form. So I use the sprint distance as a technical assistant rather than telling them too much. That, and that, yeah. that seemed to help. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so how does the canadian track and field system work do you guys have like the you know like high school state championships or how does it work yeah. over there just to get um, just to give our u.s audience a little bit of a background there yeah so canada is very it's very hierarchized so um you'll start out when you're seven plus i think or, or nine plus you'll start you'll jump in a jd jd program so that's just junior development program in the club and you'll probably get two, three coaching practices a week that kind of puts you in different events. So you're trying out the throws and jumps and sprints, um, just kind of get the athlete kind of feeling out track and field. And then after that, you'll join a high school group and then usually college, blah, blah, blah. So it's, it's, uh, it's very bottom up, bottom 
bottom level building up it's kind of like a pyramid not, not yeah. sure if I, I can explain that well but a lot of volunteer coaches that kind of undergird that model and then the top feeders are probably university coaches because um unlike unlike the states or maybe just like the states there's only two ways to kind of be a full-time coach in canada it's either you're tied to a university or you work with csi which is the canadian sport institute so those are the only two positions that you can really occupy as a full-time coach some coaches might make a little more like i know that one coach uh in canada he makes 90 grand so but he's oh, wow. he's one out of uh very many there are a lot of volunteer coaches so kind of that's that that's how it works so a lot of the the coaches are teachers that that's usually it um so young coaches it's kind of rare to find and yeah it's it's more of a you work your you work your way up with experience rather than uh being a bomb ass apprentice coach for example like guys like steve fudge and jonas dodu and those guys they they wouldn't really live well in in the canadian system just because mm-hmm. they they couldn't have had those apprentice coach positions so they can't work with the full-time coach right and and learn under them so yeah. that's kind of the challenge of of doing a in, in being in a canadian environment you have to do everything yourself um so whether it's getting weight room access or or um organizing more practices or, or doing communication you have to do everything yourself rather than have like a university find everything for you like find a physical physical therapist and do all that stuff like my coach spent maybe a year finding us a physical therapist so it's it's um it's it's very independent in canada but yeah that's more on the coaching side but just like just like you guys we have some strong provincial championships which aren't as as deep in in the prairie provinces but the biggest championships ontario also championships and bc um those are the biggest meets high school meets in north america i think bc is the highest with a thousand plus athletes at the state provincials so oh, wow yeah um that's kind of how we do it and we have a big i know in the states states is the thing like if you're if you if you get to go to states you're a freaking like olympian at your high school but for us we we have more of a club environment so you'll go to nationals you'll make uh provincial teams to go to nationals and make national teams to go to pan am junior championships world championships that type of thing in the u.s i think it's more high school coaching rather than club coaching but in, in canada yeah. it's more club so yeah yeah definitely i know you know like i'm not from, sure if you're familiar with like south dakota um so we have similar weather to you guys you know we yeah. can just drive up to north dakota and we get right to the canada border here okay. but i i have my own club here as well and i'm only one of one <laughs> youth Actually. club in south dakota so it's, wow. it's uh, definitely, it's just high school dominant. And this year was the first year where we actually sent athletes to our USATF summer series, you yeah. know, but here in the States, you know, it's kind of like what you grow up around. So here it's all like AAU summer basketball and volleyball, J-O volleyball and different things like right. that. But I've grown the club to quite a bit of athletes. And I think next year we're really going to hit it out of the park. Um, but, you know, like diving in back to, your own past season and stuff. I know we kind of talked about this on Instagram. Uh, what were, what are some few sins that you learned this past year and that you'll kind of either change or just do differently for this upcoming season? Um, some things for Jackson Chung, uh, are work on early acceleration because that drives absolutely everything. So whether you can hit a high top speed or, or, uh, for the hurdles, um, you need zero to 30 meter speed, which is kind of what I lacked. So my speed development has kind of been lacking the past four years. So I graduated university uh, with the joke that I wouldn't even have made the women's four by two relay team. Like my <laughs> one weekend, uh, I ran 24 low for the 200. And one of my, one of my teammates uh, that I barely beat w- was, was, was saying to me, because I was complaining about one of my bug bites. 
fuck, these mosquitoes are, are really popular in the summer. And she just immediately chirped. You wouldn't have been you wouldn't have been bitten if you ran faster. And that <laughs> that that weekend I ran twelve twelve in the hundred meters and twenty four one in the two hundred meters. So I was a slow donkey uh, in like right when I graduated university. So when I wanted to kind of make the salt on some world class performances, I I knew I needed to kind of make up time somehow. And the biggest the easiest compromise in my head was all right. Let's do no acceleration work, because if I just do top speed, when am I going to be in a in like a deep leaning position in the hurdles anyways? Like maybe two seconds out of the thirteen seconds, but I'm in an upright stance uh, from thirteen meters to one hundred and ten. So I wanted to work on just my top speed because I felt like it it have the most transfer. So I've kind of neglected acceleration work, and that's really ruined my top speed. And one of the reasons why I mentioned. My top speed has plateaued at around like kind of one flat. If I, I think if I work on my early acceleration again, have some full acceleration rate runs, I'll maybe I'll get transfer in in like a month. So I the only time my top speed improved this past year was um, October to November, which is when I did the zero to thirty meter run all out. But after that, I did zero to three hurdle acceleration run, just because as a hurdler. You have two times more elements you have, you have to develop. You have to develop. So, I, I figured I had to, I had to give up um, acceleration, but not top speed, and also give give up speed endurance. So I think next year, I'm gonna have a little bit less hurdling and have a little bit more running, especially zero to thirty meters and as well some longer runs of two hundred meters. So that's what I'm gonna do. Um, if I figure out this piece, my top speed improves, my acceleration improves, and as a consequence my strength improves and my hurdling improves. So that's the only big fix that I kind of have on my head. Like I kind of live the semi-pro athlete lifestyle. So there's, there's kind of like no lifestyle change I need to make. I work out at a gym. Like I, I work at one of the rare facilities where there's a track flooring and there's a high performance weight room right underneath. So I can, I can do like a potentiation complex with, 30 sec- with a 30 second like break in between. The facility, so I'm, I'm in a pretty fortunate situation. Other than that, fix my acceleration, and other than that, I'm I'm pretty solid, solid man. So that's what I need yeah. to change for next year. Yeah, I like that. Uh, you know, I mean, we could talk all day. We're almost sure. closing in on an hour here. Yeah. I, I definitely think we need to go for a part two here eventually down the road. Yeah. Um, you know, so I like to wrap things up on this podcast with uh, kind of like a speed round. Um, so, you know, branching off just what you are preparing for this next year and first question of the speed round are, are what are your goals for next year as an athlete? My goal is to run at least 13.8 seconds or just get under 14. I was around 14, three this year, um, get under 14 and yes, simple goal. And would that get you into the trials? Yes. Um, yeah. so the trials are quite easy to make. It's dude, I would never make the trials in the U S it takes, yeah. it takes you a 13, one run to make it into the finals. So, um, it get me into trials and I'd be top six, man. If I, if I can run that performance at, um, the championships, the championships is happening next week. Uh, unfortunately I, I, I didn't want to go this year. Um, cause I have to pay my own flight to Montreal, which was a $900 investment. And and there's not much on on the line anyways, but yeah, next year I want to punch hard, man. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, next question: What is uh one book that you're reading right now, and one book that you would recommend for everybody else? General book or speed training book? Uh, let's go. Let's go training book. Okay. Uh, one book I am reading right now. Let me see what I have on my desktop. I'm not reading so many books as much as I am reading like articles. So I like looking at biomech articles nowadays, like mm-hmm. the Daegu studies, the Berlin studies. I like that a lot more. But a book that I constantly. All right. What am I reading right now? Let's let's be simple. Let's say. Uh, fuck. Usually, usually I. Let's say no book I'm reading right now. But what I have open in my in my desktop is. Chronic Adaptations to Eccentric Training, a system, Systematic Review. So that's just an article by 
some New Zealand researchers. That's what I'm reading right now. One training book I'd recommend to absolutely everybody is the Charlie Francis training system. Good book. Yeah, I, I, I do the exact same thing. That was, that was literally the first training book I ever read. So I met, best, man. Right, I, I met a trainer here, and some people know my story, but I met a trainer here through EliteTrack.com. He, it was ironically 10 minutes away from me. And he reaches out to me. And at the time, I was kind of like, what, what would a coach here know, you know? Yeah. And, and I met with him. Like, he just opened up my whole world. And he introduced me to, like, you know, like, Charlie's work and all that stuff. Uh-huh. And first book he recommend, rec- recommended me to read was the CFTS. And that great, completely great changed my outlook. I mean, it was just mm-hmm. fabulous how, you, how much you can learn from I that. I mean, not even so much that it's complete in, in uh, a treatise in training a guy that eventually ran 9.79 seconds. He, I mean, he writes down absolutely everything. But that also, like, the, fin- the financial and the politics and just the amount of motivation that, that you have. Like, one of my favorite Charlie Francis quotes is, if you wait till, like, if you wait till someone hands you something, you're waiting until, like, hell, hell freezes, man. It's never going to happen. You got you to gotta kick, kick over some dumpster cans and, no- and like, knock down people's doors. And, and that's the message I get from that book. Like, just some guy who was just absolutely crazy in that he compromised for nothing. Absolutely compromised for, no, for nothing. Like, he lived on a $300 salary a month to mm-hmm. develop world-class athletes. So, he's, he's the man. Yeah. yeah. I don't think people realize that. One of the things that really opened my eyes too was like the recovery modalities that he used. Uh-huh. Obviously, he had one of the top sure. massage therapists in the world. But you know, like in terms of simple recovery modalities that you can do for essentially no cost at all in your own home, right. that, that was so eye-opening to me. Um, and you know, that's another topic that we could dive into. Recovery, as well. yeah. Um, you know, like so. One last is um, what are I, it, either just one tip or multiple tips that you would tell a young athlete looking to become a better athlete or coach or just learn more about athletics. One advice I give to a developing athlete is, um, I have to think because I want to be very careful and and make sure my advice is good. I would say. Anything you do, do it well. So, so yeah, that's anything that's that's worth your time and doing needs to be done well. So, whether it's in school or or track or other things in life, anything that you put your hands on, don't don't make it worse. Make something better by by the effort you put into the world. So, I mean, the top coaches, the top athletes have always been excellent at doing this like they don't compromise for anything so some of the best athletes that i've known they're the guys that do their homework show up on time uh encourage teammates you know just simple things and that kind of cascades into everything you do on on the track and there are some athletes that aren't that good whether it's socially academically or or other things and my advice to them is fuck do your homework first before you worry about your your fly 30 times so yeah. anything that's worth doing is worth doing well. Lord Chesterfield. Love it. I mean, you absolutely killed this podcast. I, Thanks, I wish man. more people would get to know about who Jackson Chun is because yeah. you're honestly one of the smartest young guys I've ever met. Uh, thanks, and man. I, I don't even want to throw the young title in there. I mean, you're just period one of the smartest right. guys I've ever met. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm crazy how, for this stuff, man. I'm crazy for this stuff. Exactly. How, how can people find you? Um, um, do you have a website? Yeah. What, what's your handles for everything? The, the easiest way is just Instagram. Um, I'm pretty active on it. I post frequently. I, I post everything. I treat it as a training log. So unfortunately, I don't kind of cherry pick research studies, which, which maybe makes some of my posts a little hard to read. But I'm, yeah, I, I think that kind of is, is the way I, I want to approach it. Like just post uh, as I would post as a, like any guy it's kind of it's authentic documentation of training i i hate it when people kind of uh only post the best like post everything man like that's like if, if you're justin gallon freaking show me everything show me your dumbbell bench show me 
show me absolutely everything. And, and that's kind of how I approach my Instagram. I'm just very open. Uh, Jackson Chung Sprint. I also have Twitter that I'm, I don't have too much of following on, but Instagram is, is a good way to reach me at, at, just, at, at Jackson Chung Sprint. So. Perfect. Well, Jackson, I appreciate you taking the time. Thanks, this was yeah. an awesome Pleasure. podcast. We definitely yeah. have to do this again sometime. I'm looking forward to it. That'll do it. Thank you guys for listening to this episode with Jackson Chun. I'm almost certain that you guys got a ton of good information from this podcast. If you guys want to find us, you can look at boom-athletics.com. Also listen to this podcast on Spotify or Anchor and soon to be coming on iTunes. Check us out on at Boom Athletics on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook as well. Thank you guys for listening and stay tuned for the next one.